After I finished school, I decided I wanted to become a journalist, but it was sort of a last-minute decision, so I didn't have any qualifications. I thought my best chance at getting into the industry was to become the assistant to a journalist, which is how I ended up in Maureen Dowd's office trying to convince her to hire me. For those of you who don't know, Maureen Dowd is an award-winning New York Times columnist, and she was a big name in my house growing up for her commentary during the Bush years. And she's smart and witty and a great writer, basically everything I wanted to be when I grew up. And somehow, years later, I was sitting in her office with an actual shot at working for her. And the interviews seemed to be going well. I told her about my job at NPR, but not enough for her to figure out how little I actually did. And I shared with her some pieces I'd written for a blog on drinking sangria to ward off scurvy and tricking my dad into paying attention to me during a baseball game. And she actually liked them. So I left the interview thinking it had gone well. In fact, too well. So well that a week later, Maureen told me that she thought the assistant job would be a bad fit for me because she thought I was ready to be an actual journalist. I wasn't. Somehow, I had talked myself up and out of the one job in journalism I might have been qualified for. And Maureen said she wanted to set up meetings for me with editors at the New York Times. The New York Times, the newspaper that every journalist dreams of writing for, and somehow 1999 Pulitzer Prize winner for commentary slash my personal and professional hero, Maureen Dowd, thought I had a future at the New York Times. And part of me wanted to correct her because I was pretty sure she was wrong, but she was saying all of these really nice things about me, and I wanted her to keep thinking those nice things, and I was pretty sure if I corrected her, she wouldn't. So I didn't. Maureen told me to pitch ideas for a column and a video series, and that she'd set up meetings for me with the head of video and the head of editorial up in New York, and that lots of people got jobs that way. But I was 22 years old, and my dream job was to be someone's assistant. That is not someone with a lot of original ideas. But I did my best, and my best was not good. My video pitch leaned heavily on the millennial angle because youth was all I had. The pitch boiled down to, how do you get millennials to read the newspaper? You make the newspaper a video series about things millennials like starring me, a millennial. Topics included the 90s, free concerts, Brooklyn, free concerts in Brooklyn. Like I said, the pitch was not good. Now, to cope with the situation in which someone I'd admired for most of my life had what felt like an undeservedly high opinion of me, I spent the end of that summer reading a lot of internet think pieces on the imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is this thing where people feel like they aren't qualified for the jobs or the opportunities that they're given, and that sooner or later, the rest of the world will find out. And that perfectly describes how I feel about all of these meetings. So I convince myself, maybe it's not that I'm unqualified. Maybe I'm suffering from imposter syndrome. 
I mean, Maureen Dowd believes in me, and she has a Pulitzer, so maybe a 22-year-old does deserve to have her own video series and weekly column in the New York Times. On the train ride up to New York, I'm thinking about my imposter syndrome and trying to psych myself up for these meetings, and as we go past Baltimore, this little voice in my head says, but why would the New York Times hire you? You didn't even write for your college newspaper. And I say, no, you focused on your studies. 1991 Breakthrough Award winner slash your personal and professional girl crush Maureen Dowd said she thought your research on the Northern Ireland women's prisons protests was interesting. And then as we're going past Philly, that little voice says, but you don't have any on-camera experience. And I say, that's not true. You were a backup dancer in your college dorms, teach me how to Dougie, music video parody, teach me how to bunny, and it was very well received. And then we're pulling into Penn Station and the voice says, but you're just a temp at NPR. You don't even do journalism. You're just in a marketing group and it's not even the main marketing group. And I say, not true. 1991 Pulitzer Prize finalist for reporting slash goddess incarnate Maureen Dowd said you have broadcast experience. And I arrive at the office building and I'm escorted up to meet the head of video content who also happens to be the third highest ranking member of the editorial staff at the New York Times. And we introduce ourselves and he says, Kaylin, it's so nice to meet you. Maureen has said so many wonderful things about you. And in my head, I'm like, oh, my God. Author of Are Men Necessary slash American Treasure, Maureen Dowd, is saying nice things about me to other people? And then he says, and I read your pitch, and I think you have some good ideas. And I think, of course, the 90s have universal appeal. And I start to think maybe Maureen Dowd was right. Maybe I do belong here. And just as I think I've conquered my imposter syndrome, the editor takes a pause and he looks kind of confused and he says, but the thing is, you don't have any video experience. And that voice I thought I'd silenced on the train says, see? And my imposter syndrome house of cards comes crumbling down around me, and I realize I'm not going to get this job. In fact, I will be very surprised if I get any job, which is upsetting because all I wanted was an assistant job, and they won't even let me have that. And after the meeting's over, I go back to the Algonquin Hotel where my boyfriend at the time had booked me a room because he, like Maureen Dowd, had an unwarranted belief in my ability And I'm sitting in this historic hotel where The New Yorker was founded and Dorothy Parker had lunch every day, and I realize I don't belong here. I don't have imposter syndrome. I'm just genuinely unqualified. And that voice in my head that I silenced that I thought was self-doubt was actually self-awareness. Why aren't there more internet think pieces about being an imposter syndrome imposter? And the worst part is usually when you don't get a job, at least there's this feeling of like, well, like I'll show them and they don't know what they're missing. But I couldn't even feel indignant. I just felt like, well, they accurately assessed my abilities and potential. Like they definitely made the right call on that one.
And when I get back to D.C., I'll have to tell all these people who believed in me, including 1996 Glamour Woman of the Year slash my real-life fairy godmother Maureen Dowd, that if this was my shot, I blew it. And that's the most depressing thought of all. So sitting there in the Algonquin Hotel, I asked myself, what would Dorothy Parker do? And I decide that Dorothy Parker would definitely get drunk in this hotel lobby. So I order a $20 cocktail because New York is the worst, and that's what I do. I kept going up to New York for meetings for the rest of that fall, and if anything, they just get worse because I've cured my imposter-imposter syndrome. So going into these meetings, I know I'm not qualified. And the people I'm meeting with know I'm not qualified, but out of a sense of obligation, we both have to pretend to gradually come to that conclusion during the meeting and not before. And it was crushing, not so much because I wasn't going to get a job, which I'd already resigned myself to, but because a few months ago, Maureen Dowd, the person I wanted to be when I grew up, thought I was special. And with each meeting, I could feel myself chipping away at that illusion. By the end of that fall, it had become clear to everyone, I think, including Maureen, that I was not going to talk myself into a job. But she gave me one last piece of advice, and that was to keep writing. So I did. At first, that was pieces I wrote for blogs, like the ones I shared with her. And later that became writing stories that I performed on stage at shows here in D.C. And Ian, who you heard from earlier, saw one of those shows. And he reached out to me to ask whether I'd considered doing anything in audio because he thought I had potential. And this time I believed it. As we were developing this show, I realized so many of the stories that I told on stage were about failures like this one. Because... Those stories are the most fun to tell, and by sharing them, our failures become a little less scary, which is how I ended up here, talking to you. I hope you'll show up for the next episode, and the one after that, and the one after that. I'm Kate Riley, and this is Failure. Keep an ear out for us.